your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, a new internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. The number of people in the United States who say they have never smoked has increased from 44% in 1960 to approximately 59% in 2008. Still, the good news is dampened by the evident risk of non-smokers still being susceptible to lung cancer, with 10 to 15 percent of cases occurring in people who never smoked. Researchers recently announced the results from the largest study ever done on non-smokers and lung cancer in North America, Europe, and Asia. The findings, which were based on a combined data from 13 studies done from 1960 to 2004, revealed that death rates among lifelong non-smokers have not increased over the past several decades, and non-smokers are not at any greater risk than before. While the cause of lung cancer in non-smokers remains unknown, the study, based on 2.4 million non-smokers who had lung cancer, sheds light on who is at risk. Results revealed that male non-smokers are about 25% more likely to die from lung cancer than women non-smokers. Both male and female participants of the study developed the disease at similar rates, so stage of the disease was not a factor in the comparison. Although non-smokers are at risk for lung cancer, the risk for smokers remains significantly greater. Men who never smoked had a 1.1% risk of dying from lung cancer, compared to 22% among male smokers. Women who never smoked had a 0.8% risk of dying versus 12% for female smokers. Currently, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in men and the second leading cause of cancer death in women worldwide. In other cancer news, researchers announced a new way to test for cervical cancer, which provides more accurate results and identifies more dangerous lesions than traditional pap smears. The new procedure, which is used in combination with pap smears, tested for certain cell changes that indicated precancerous lesions. The cell changes exposed a sort of disturbance by the human papillomavirus, or HPV, which causes cervical cancer. While only a small percentage of women who have HPV will develop cancer, additional research was needed to find out who was at a higher risk of developing the disease. Researchers say that, used in isolation, pap smears currently produce too many false positives requiring most women to undergo a colposcopy exam, an expensive gynecological follow-up for abnormal pap smears. However, pap smears, used in conjunction with the new test, offers a more accurate method of screening. In the study, researchers were able to identify 50% more of the dangerous lesions than pap smears alone. 
Cervical cancer is the second most common type of cancer in women. Each year, an estimated 500,000 women are diagnosed with the disease, and about 300,000 die from it, mostly in the developing world. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. On today's episode, we will focus on the empowered caregiver and why 80% of caregivers report stress and anxiety. In 2007, the wellness community launched the STAR Campaign, a national initiative that honors and recognizes the important role of cancer caregivers. Uh, As part of the campaign, the wellness community conducted a national survey of patients and caregivers, and we we found that 49% of cancer patients and survivors surveyed believe that their caregiver felt regular distress and anxiety throughout the cancer experience. Yet more than 80% of caregivers said that they personally experienced regular stress and anxiety through the cancer experience. So, again, a little bit of a disconnect between what the cancer patient uh, is seeing and observing and what the real experience is uh, of the caregiver. Now, if you'd like more information on the STAR campaign, please go to www.starcampaign.org. We have two great guests with us here today on the show to talk about caregiving um, and and this important and growing movement. First, we have Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust, an independent public charity dedicated to promoting and facilitating charitable giving by individuals, families, and organizations while expanding their knowledge in the field of philanthropy. Welcome, Eileen. Hi, Kim. How are you? Great. Thanks for being on with us today. Uh, our other guest that we have with us is uh, Andrea Roschke, and she is a caregiver to her husband, Mark, who was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor. Both Andrea and Mark are participants at our wellness community in Valley Ventura in Southern California, and were also featured in The Balancing Act, Tips for the Cancer Caregiver, which is a booklet that the wellness community produced this year as, the part, as a part of our STAR campaign. Uh, the Balancing Act is the first exclusively caregiver-focused resource from the wellness community, and it provides helpful information towards empowering cancer caregivers. Uh, to read Andrea and Mark's full story, you can order a copy, a free copy of the Balancing Act at www.starcampaign.org, and we'd be happy to get that out in the mail to you. So um, hello, Andrea, and thanks for being with us today from California. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we're really grateful to have both of you with us, and um, I, you know I want to jump right into this conversation about uh, about caregiving and the different perspectives that you both bring to this conversation. Uh, Andrea, your husband Mark was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor in 2003. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit what that was like for you, for your family. You know, when you first heard that he he had cancer, what was that like? Well, the first the first when you first hear the news, you um, it's almost surreal. It's shock and disbelief like watching somebody else's tragic story. Um, and you don't really have a lot of time to react, or we didn't, because um, we found out on a Thursday, and by the following Tuesday he was having brain surgery. So um, there wasn't really a lot of time to re- react initially. Um, I think, you know, in our case we had two boys who were 14 and 15 at the time. So my um, my thoughts and my husband's, too, immediately went to um protective of them and trying to fight this so he could be there for them. Um, You know, I had lost my dad at 17, and I didn't want my children to have to go through that. So, um, you know, it really just is a lot of being led through things and um, feeling numb and just kind of following what everybody is telling you to do. But you don't don't really, I think, process what's going on until 
sometime after the fact. I called that post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm. And the disconnect between what you were saying, I thought that was kind of interesting because my husband always says, well, you're not dealing with what I'm dealing with, but I say, yes, I am. I'm dealing with that plus everything else in, everything, everything in our else. lives. Yeah. What, did Mark have symptoms or what was it that led to the diagnosis? He did have symptoms that he wasn't aware of, but I was aware of them. He was doing some like run-on talking and repeating himself, just really out of character for him. And I'd say something to him and he'd say, oh, you're crazy. Nothing's wrong with me. So I encouraged him to um, to see somebody. And, um, you know, I don't know what I thought it was wrong, but it was, you know, worse than anything I could have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Andrea, I've traveled to wellness communities across the country and I'm, you know, I'm amazed. I've sat in on programs and support groups and, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at the, the disconnect that, that we see sometimes between the patient and the caregiver. And I, you know, I find that, uh, you know, what I hear in the caregiver groups is, you know, my, you know, my spouse or the, per- the person with cancer I'm taking care of, you know, they can, they can cry today, you know, they can right. stay in bed today, they can be scared, they can not want to kind of deal with the world, and right. that's kind of okay, but for me as the caregiver, I have to get up, I have right. to get up, I have to take care of these two boys, I yeah. have to keep this, this, this house together, so sometimes we find that by the time they get to the wellness community and get to our programs and support groups, boy, they sometimes need it more than the patient. Definitely, definitely, and you know, he... He is the person I, we did things as a partnership always. So for, for our relationship, it was always him I would turn to if I needed something and, and vice versa. But now I couldn't turn to him, and, right. you know, when, when I was going through the worst crisis I'd ever been through. Ever so been through. It was like I became a single parent at the same time and he became one of my children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about this. Um, Eileen, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the National Philanthropic Trust and its mission, and then we're going to tell our audience a little bit about the, the, the connection there and some of the wonderful work that we are starting to do together. So please uh, tell us a little bit about the trust. Great, thanks. Um, NPT is a national public charity. We help individual donors and other foundations um, do their philanthropy. We help them make their grants. We actually own the money in the donor-advised fund part of the business we're in, and we work with supporting organizations, which are like larger versions of donor-advised funds, and we help individual donors uh, find charities that match their interests. And with some of the the relationships we have, we actually... um, help them identify specific charities and projects. Um, our breast cancer funds come from the Breast Cancer 3-Day. We also work with Mrs. Atkins with the Atkins Foundation on diabetes and nutrition. So we have a number of donors we actually are partners with and trying to help them find charities that meet their needs. And uh, one of our funds um, that we've connected with the wellness community is actually with our Breast Cancer Field of Interest Fund. But I also want to say that um, my mother died of lung cancer and my sister-in-law died of breast cancer. So um, I wear a dual hat here. I've been a caretaker myself, um, but also in a great position of facilitating philanthropy that's going to be helping other caretakers. So um, I'm going to be wearing more of my professional hat, but my personal hat's going to come out probably because I've sat in those shoes and I totally have, um, you never forget it. I mean, I'm not a caretaker right now, but I, you don't forget how that feels. What that said, absolutely, and we, you know, we really welcome you to share some of that personal perspective as well. I always find it amazing in, in, in the work that we do. You know, you can't really find anyone who hasn't been touched by cancer. Uh, we all know someone who uh, has 
has uh, has cancer now and is battling cancer now. We all know someone who has died from cancer. We all know uh, people who who beat cancer. Um, and you know, it's amazing when you uh, talk to all of those uh, you know around us. You and I are working on this project together, but if, you know, and I'm learning today uh, about your even your own personal uh, experience with your family. Uh, you know, and uh, and that experience and having been a caregiver, and we certainly want to talk about that as well today. Um, Eileen, when was the trust uh, founded? I know you're in Philadelphia. We're in, based in Philadelphia. We were founded 12 years ago by a small trust bank called Pitcairn Trust Company. We have a little bit to do with them still, but not much. We're national. We've collected, um, gathered about $1.3 billion in charitable assets. We've given away $700 million. Uh, we have a board of 12 uh, very stellar individuals from all over the country, and we have a staff of 28. So we went from 2 to 28 in those 12 years. And we, our goal really is to facilitate philanthropy. And so uh, most of the staff people here work on either the money coming in with the donors or the money going out. And we've been so privileged to have some incredibly wealthy people that have great interests. And then with the breast cancer money, has come from many small donations that people have given us. Excellent. So we're talking today with Eileen Heisman from the National Philanthropic Trust and Andy Arushki, who is a caregiver uh, to her husband, Mark. Uh, Andrea is based out in California and has participated with our uh, wellness community in the Valley Ventura area. We're going to take uh, just a brief break here, and we're going to come back and continue our conversation about cancer caregiving. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today we're talking about the empowered caregiver and why caring for the caregiver 
is so important. And I'm joined by Andrea Roschke, who is a caregiver uh, and a participant at the wellness community of Valley Ventura in Southern California, and Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. Um, Eileen, I want to go back to the conversation we were starting to have before the break and talk specifically about the National Philanthropic Trust's Breast Cancer Field of Interest Fund. Um, The wellness community, we're happy to say, was uh, recently announced to be one of the beneficiaries uh, of that fund, and we will use the grant to create and, and launch a comprehensive program for the caregivers of women with breast cancer, oftentimes a forgotten uh, and neglected population. As part of the program, we're also going to be developing a, a public awareness campaign to really develop uh, a lot more awareness around the needs of caregivers. Um, the grant will educate family caregivers to be stronger allies uh, and advocates for their family members with breast cancer. I just want to go back. I, I want you to tell our audience a little bit more about the Breast Cancer Field of Interest Fund and really why the National Philanthropic Trust deemed it important uh, to support caregivers and address some of the uh, unmet needs that caregivers face today. Sure. Um, NPT partners with the Komen uh, Foundation, Komen for the Cure in Dallas, and we run the 60-mile three-day walks, and we're one of the two beneficiaries. Komen receives 85% of the net benefits of the walks, and NPT's Field of Interest Fund for Breast Cancer receives 15%. And from that 15%, we have a committee of people here, mostly from Philadelphia, who help us um, look to how we want to spend that money. And I think we know that because we get a smaller portion that funding research was not – we weren't going to be able to make a big impact in the research area, and that was Coleman's commitment. So we decided to look at treatment prevention and support programs for people and their family members who were hit – you know, suffering from cancer directly and indirectly. And um, just, you know, one of the reasons we knew the wellness community um, is when in Philadelphia when my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer, um, I knew Trish Wellenbach, who was the director here, and I actually was a client for a brief period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to experience firsthand your services. And when we were looking at national programs, we really wanted to focus on large regional or national programs. The wellness community really... Um, came into mind immediately because of their how widely spread they are around the country and the quality of work that they do. So we actually invited the wellness community to come to us with some ideas of how they might look at some funds, use some funds in a transformational way around their work with breast cancer. And it was a great, uh, somebody said to me once, you know, you're as a grant maker, you're only as good as the organizations that you fund. And when the wellness community came back with wanting to support caregivers, I think there was a unanimous yes among all the committee members and especially resonated with me. Because I was a caregiver for my yes. mother, and also my brother was the main caregiver when my, before my sister-in-law died of breast cancer when she was 40. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. that was really sad. And yeah. um, it, I think one of the things that struck everybody in the room, and especially me, is that it's exactly what Andrea was saying, which is you get this news and you realize you have to rearrange your life and your world. And for the breast cancer work that we were doing, you know, most of the people that get breast cancer, then not all of them are women. And the people that are the caretakers are are probably their husbands or their mothers or their partners. Um, and that 
and that the support for them is not anything we'd read existed very strongly. And mm-hmm. we just realized that there was a gap. And we thought how wonderful that we could provide support to the families who were suffering and the kids especially. I know that my nephew, who was 11 when his mother died and mm-hmm. three when she was diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, was used to ask when he was very young to be part of the doctor's visits because mm-hmm. he wanted to know what was going on with his mother, even when he was maybe too young to even understand. Wow. And it's, Yes, he demanded it. Um, and he's now 24. Five years old and living and working in uh, Virginia and graduated from college, but at the time he saw this mystery going on around him. Yeah. And so the notion that you could support families um, who are suffering in and around the breast cancer issue was, it was terrifically important, and we thought a great idea and something we hadn't heard of before. So we were delighted that he came up with the, the program and really happy to work with it in the breast cancer arena. And our funds have to only go to breast cancer, but we know that one of the things you're known for is using thing, you know, using funds as a model and then replicating yeah. it with other kinds of cancers. And so we're hoping that you'll be able to use the money to attract other money. But yeah. we just think it's enormously important, and we're really looking forward to seeing um, the program, you know, get up and running, mature, and to see what kind of benefit it will provide. And we know that it's the kind of benefit that sometimes is hard to measure, and that's really it's important for us to measure our impact, but it's not the only thing that a funder uses. So we, we instinctively, we know that the wellness community provides good services and that caregivers really need support. Yeah, well, it's, uh, we, we are just at the wellness community so honored um, that we were selected for this project. And, uh, you know, again, we've been serving caregivers for so many years, but the idea that we can actually really focus and create a formal program and a campaign to address the needs of this neglected population is just wonderful, and we're, uh, we're thrilled to be beginning this project uh, together with you, um, Andrea, we we we, uh, we talked a little bit. Eileen touched a little bit on some some of the things that children go through mm-hmm. when someone is diagnosed with cancer. So you, you know, you as a mother, your husband was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, obviously, great impact on him, on you, but also two sons. Yes. Uh, what what age were they at the time that your husband was diagnosed, and, and what was that like? Just talking to, to to them about this experience. Well, they were fourteen and fifteen at the time, and. Um, they are very different from each other. So um, their reaction was quite different. One of them wanted, um, the younger one wanted it to be life as usual. He wanted to pretend it wasn't happening and he could just do what he normally would do on an everyday basis. He didn't really want people to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. And my older son is a much more, he's more sensitive and you know, he he was, you know, the focus of the family becomes this illness. And so he, and you can't, even though we want to protect our children and maybe, you know, you think, think you shouldn't tell them everything or all the details, they're well aware. Like you said, your, um, I think you said your nephew, Eileen, was, mm-hmm. you know, at a very young age going, I want to go because he could tell that's where the focus of the family was. And um, so we, we talked to their school counselors and we um, basically let them lead the way as to how they wanted to to deal with it, and um, um, the wellness community was a tremendous help for for the whole family. You know, we went to a support group there, and um, the kids did not go, but I learned a lot of things from other caregivers with young children about um, how to talk to the kids, and, and um, you know, basically we just kind of all learned a new normal, we call it, and yes. just kind of our, our life was turned upside down, and um Myself used to being, you know, I used to be able to plan everything, and I felt like I was in control. So losing that sense of control was a 
a huge adjustment for me in dealing with the uncertainty. So we just kind of learned on a day-to-day basis what was going to work for our family. And, and um, I think, you know, my boys now are 20 and 19, so um, and they're great kids, and they're very close with their dad. And I think, um, you know, somehow we got to, the, got to this point. Now, lots and lots of help. <laughs> now, you, not long after your husband was mm-hmm. diagnosed with cancer, your son yes. was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder mm-hmm. and needed a kidney transplant. Yes. Tell us a little bit about, <laughs> talk about, talk yeah. about caregivers. You're the caregiver of caregivers. Right. Apparently, I, am, I have an advanced degree in caregiving. I, I think you do <laughs> have a master's in caregiving. <laughs> my, um, my younger son, actually, just when we were kind of breathing a sigh of relief about Mark, um, and you know his treatment was basically not over, but just in a in a in a kind of uh, automatic mode. And uh, my son came down with a um, a lot of strange symptoms, and it ended up being diagnosed with um, an autoimmune disorder, like you said. But uh, within four months after his first symptoms showed up, his kidneys completely shut down. So it was um, you know a whole. It was he was actually ended up being a lot sicker. Um, ironically, than my husband was with a brain tumor because physically Mark wasn't impaired, um, and Ryan was just sick every single day. It was it was heartbreaking for me because you know it's it's you know, it's my baby, and you know watching somebody, no matter who it is that you love, go through such physical um, torment, it just you know breaks my heart. So um, dealing with that was a lot you know, a lot more hands-on because he was 16 at the time. He ended up on dialysis, and we did it at home. I became a, a dialysis nurse at home we, every night for 10 hours. He was hooked up to a machine and, um, you know, ended up dealing with that. And then my older son wanted to be um, tested to be a donor. So um, a year ago, they both underwent surgery and uh, transplanted a kidney from one of my boys to the other one. Wow. So it was a, like I said, now we have another new normal, and our life yeah. was turned, our lives were turned upside down once again. And how's Ryan doing? He's doing great. He's wow. uh, a year out from surgery. Just uh, left for school two weeks ago to UC Berkeley, and wow. has an amazing um, outlook on life. I mean, I wouldn't wish it uh, illness on anyone, but for him at 19 years old to feel the way he does about life, and um, he told me his. His um, soul has been deepened and his heart has been widened. So, you know, for, for your kid to be able to express that and feel that way is, um, is the blessing that way. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty yeah. amazing. Um, Andrew, just quickly, because we're, we're going to take a break in about a minute or two, mm-hmm. but um, you said you participated in a caregiver support group at the uh-huh. wellness community. Yes. Just tell, tell us one or two things. You know, tell us what that was like, what were the benefits, just one or two things about that experience, and um, then we're going to take a quick break. Sure. The biggest benefit is being in a safe place to um, you know, to, to let down and say, yeah, you know what, this stinks. <laughs> because yeah, when you're yeah. caring for these people, you can't ever show them that it's, you know, that it's getting to you that way. But I felt safe in this in this support group to, you know, yell about it and complain about it, know that I wasn't alone, that there were other people. And, you're, you know, you can be angry in there, you can cry, you can do all the things you don't want to do in front of the the patient. And um, in other, the other is just um, hope that we got from the wellness community, just knowing that there are people dealing with this illness that, um, you know, outlive the expectations and, and the statistics. So um, I think those are the two main things that we took out of our experience with the wellness community. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we uh, 
you know, we see that quite a bit. As I said, I've, uh, you know, I've had a chance to sit in on, on patient groups, caregiver groups, and, 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 and programs uh, all over the country. And I think that, I, I actually think that, uh, you know, we've been doing this for 26 years. And I have to say that for me, it's been one of the really special things um, about the wellness community, that it's not, that, that uh, you know, it's not just about you getting cancer, um, but really your whole family gets cancer. It really affects uh, the whole family. As you said, it's really, it's adjusting to a new normal, both during the experience and even uh, after the experience. Right. We're talking today about cancer caregiving. We are going to take a, a quick break and we'll be back uh, with a very special interview. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Cap, you recently lost it. As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
The wellness community launched the STAR campaign in an effort to recognize the important role of the caregiver. We were fortunate to enlist the help of the talented actress, singer, and cancer survivor, Diane Carroll, who became our campaign spokesperson. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Diane uh, and get her thoughts on why she wanted to help raise awareness of this growing caregiver movement. I'm Kim Chibaldo, and I'm here today with our friend, legendary singer and actress, Diane Carroll. Diane has been working extensively on raising awareness of the needs of cancer caregivers in America. Uh, Diane, I want to talk to you a little bit today about caregiving, but I'd like to back up a little bit. I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about your own cancer experience when you were diagnosed with cancer. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Um, I've always said that that moment in my life, I will never forget. I'm sure there were 50,000 feelings going on in my body at once. Mm -hmm. However, I couldn't tell you the name of any of them. They all converged and I was, I could not move and I couldn't form a thought. But eventually I said, the only thing to do here is get as much information as you possibly can Mm -hmm. and go forward if you we don't know how yet, but you know that you have to go forward. That wasn't immediate. Immediate, mm-hmm. it was almost sit down and try to make this real. It was not real. It was uh, so we. Ca- I came to grips with it, and thank heavens, I had help, support, family, friends, my caregivers, so on and so forth. Did you feel alone at that time? You were diagnosed, isolated. Felt so alone mm-hmm. in your life. You've known others that have cancer. But you never expected to hear it directed toward you. And when it is, and the doctor, I waited all day to hear from him, and he called at the end of the day, and he said, I don't like to do this, but you insisted that I tell you. And I'm leaving with my family. Uh, We're going, I think he was going skiing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, he's being light and fluffy, so really, this is fine. You know, it's good. He said, yes, you definitely do have cancer. Mm. I I just didn't know what to say, but he said, I want you to remember something while I'm away. Yes. I'm setting up some meetings for you that you will, but also it's less than a centimeter because you were very, very diligent about having this every year. For you. And it's a part of your, your my work that we do this as often as we do. Um, and I, you must take solace. You must be happy. Yes. That you oh, you have found something that is less than a centimeter. Diane, don't forget that. Yes. And he left me with that. You know, uh, Barry's an incredible man, incredible doctor. And I felt safe just hearing him say hearing that. Hearing him say that. Yes. yes. Now, so you talk about in your, in your career, in your business, that one must be quite diligent uh, about these things. We all know people who've been diagnosed with cancer, even in my own family, my grandmother, yes. my aunt, my uncle. I've seen what they've gone through. They have not gone through this disease in the, in the public eye. Is it different as someone who is a legend, who's recognized walking down the street in Hollywood? Is it different to be diagnosed with cancer in a place like Hollywood than in the rest of the U.S.? Yes, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's very different. What we do in my part of the world where I now live, um, we are constantly in front of the audience. We are constantly in front of people for their either their approval or yes. their disapproval. Yes. We move and we don't move according to how they accept us. So naturally, most producers 
um, are not that fascinated by people that have to say, yes, I've had cancer. Mm -hmm. So it is a question you have to ask yourself before you make the decision. You should certainly mull it over, as they say, for as long as you possibly can before you decide if you will share it or if you will not. I know many women that we see every day on television who have decided not to share it. And what motivated you to to share it with America? I felt that eventually it would become something that America would know. I would prefer that America feel, I wanted everyone to feel, including my family, that I was willing to say, this is not the kind of challenge I expected. It's not the kind of challenge that one should be proud of, but I have it. And I think how I react to this and how I behave is very important, not just to me, but it's also important to my family and to the world, anyone who is aware of the fact that I've been around since before rock. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important that they see how I I intend to to ride with this new problem. And I... I really gained a great deal of support, information, love mm. by having that experience with with others. Yes. Let's talk about the, that, that love for a minute, that support for a minute. We want to talk about uh, cancer caregivers. We find that oftentimes the caregiver is neglected in the experience. There's a great burden that's placed on the caregiver. Tell us a little bit. You've shared a little bit about your friend Marilyn as a caregiver to you during your cancer experience. Tell us about the role that Marilyn and others in your life played during that time. It was very nice that they came together as a coalition (laughs) and decided that um, it would be very important when I leave my session, my radiation session, which is five times a week, um, that I have a a destination and I have a a friend who represents... um, my life. They know my whole life story. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not, whatever the mood may be after you've encountered the machine, I call it. Um, So luncheons were planned, meetings with people flew in from out of town. Mm. Um, Up. It was up. It was positive. It was, you know, today we have to do so-and-so because there is that awful feeling that you may not be necessary any longer because of this disease. Um, And for that, I'll always love them. I never felt unnecessary. I never felt that they were catering to something that was a burden to them and taking away from their lives. Um, There was an honesty about it. A complete honesty. And they took it as a mission. Right. I have to do that tomorrow. Guess who's coming to dinner? Who's going to... (laughs) (laughs) Guess who's going to meet you tomorrow? So it um, it was really fun. Yeah. They made it fun for me. Yeah. What what do you think are some of the burdens, some of the challenges that caregivers face on a regular basis caring for people with cancer? Uh, there were a few times when there were a few husbands, <laughs> bless their hearts, who said, what is this? I mean, why aren't you here? Yes. And what is she, I, but, but what is she doing about her cancer herself? What is she doing? Mm. And there is not the communication, usually, between a man and a woman. Uh, as there is between a woman and a woman about something called breast cancer, um, about cancer in a woman. And um, 
I was surprised. I thought everyone was going to be terribly, completely, their whole lives devoted to whatever it is that we can help her. No, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. But you know we have dinner at 7.30, Marilyn. What are you doing? But uh, eventually the husbands come around. You know, it's isn't it wonderful that your friends are rallying to you at this time? And I was able to say yes. And then some of the husbands eventually had their own problems to deal with. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was no longer a female situation, yes. which was a growing up process for them as well. Yes. One of the things that we see in some of the data is that caregivers report similar or sometimes the same levels of emotional distress uh, that the cancer patient is experiencing. But we uh, have created in our society a lot of outlets for the patients, support groups and places where patients can grow and and, and, and be a part of a community, not so much for uh, the caregivers, do you think it's important that we pay more attention to the needs of those caregivers and create that place for them to really let loose a little bit? It's absolutely essential. And and I think that when I learned that uh, cancer had come into my life and I learned that there were certain women who were in a position to be very helpful and uh, uh, without inconveniencing their families and their, their lifestyle, um, that was very... It was very enormously bonding that they would do that, but I wanted to remind them that uh, we both we always knew that I could not become their priority. There was no way I wanted that, and I yes. I didn't want them to give that. Mm-hmm. It was if I had too much of their time, I would tell them, yeah. "You can't do this. Your family's never going to care for me ever again. Right. I'll never be invited to your house for dinner." <laughs> So you helped them create that balance as well for themselves. Yes, we were learning how to do it because I really didn't know what to tell my care- caregiver. That's yeah. why I'm so involved with this program. Yeah. I didn't know what to say to her. She didn't know what to say, but she's the kind of person, her research is endless. Yes. So she was very helpful to herself as well as to me. Wonderful. Diane, uh, we've had a chance to get to know you at the wellness community. You've got involved with our organization. Had a, you had a chance to visit our wellness community in uh Redondo Beach and work together time. on yes. some of these caregiving yes. issues. Tell us about some of your impressions uh, of the wellness community and what you've observed in the time that we've been working together. Well, the, the day that I spent at Redondo Beach, several things happened. The thing that was most important to me was the mother and son relationship. Um, I didn't realize that was her son. She works there. Judith, yes. Judith. And uh, she was very happy to have the wellness community in her life. Her son had learned really how to operate with his mother through his connection to the wellness community. Mm -hmm. And the bonding about it and not being angry, because that happens to so many people, children of the patient. Um, And he was completely at ease at the wellness community, had made it a part of his life, really, to be with his mother, around his mother. He knew this was a special time for her. There was such a thing as fear in her heart at that time. Yes. So coming there was kind of like, I don't know, an afternoon going to play basketball or whatever. And he, um, he seemed to make this a very comfortable place for himself. So she was not feeling that she was interfering with his life. Yes. He enjoyed being there. And I thought, isn't this outstanding? And that's one of the, I think, one of the major 
contributions of the wellness community. That's terrific. Diane Carroll, you've become a, a friend of uh, our organization, a wonderful supporter. You've just been terrific in helping to get the word out about cancer caregiving, about the challenges and burdens these caregivers face. We are so grateful to you for all that you've done for the wellness community, for cancer patients, and for cancer caregivers in America. Thank you, Diane. In many ways, you've given much more to me than I've given to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are going to take a short break. We will be right back to talk a little bit about uh, our interview with Diane. And Carol. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We just heard a heartfelt interview with actress, singer, and cancer survivor Diane Carroll. Uh, I want to turn to our guest now, and I'd love, love to get your uh, thoughts and reactions on the interview uh, with Diane. She's become such a wonderful friend of the, uh, of the wellness community, and I think it was just great to hear her thoughts about her own cancer experience and around really the, the caregivers that surrounded her throughout that. Um, Eileen, let me start with you. Any, any thoughts about, uh, uh, about Diane's comments? She's so eloquent. I mean, it's, she's so calm and graceful. I think a lot of people who suffer through this, more everyday people, sound much more frenetic and kind of beaten down by it. So it's nice to hear somebody that's uplifted and kind of uh, sees the bright side of everything. I think um, 
for a lot of folks, it's it's scarier. I mean, she she didn't sound scared, but I know when we had the cancer diagnosis in my family with my mother and my sister-in-law, there was a lot of fear and sadness, and you just didn't get that part of her. I, the thing that struck me as I was listening to it, and my mother was a nurse actually, and the sort of the some of the opposite feelings, which when you Somebody who's a caregiver themselves who gets cancer, she didn't let us be a caregiver to her. We were begging to care, take care of her, and she was a nurse, and she knew medical things, and she didn't want us to come and help her until the very end when she was pretty helpless. But um, And when you have somebody you want to take care of and they're not letting you, that's almost as frustrating as taking the exhaustion of that is almost equivalent to the exhaustion of when they're letting you take care of them and you don't have time for yourself. I mean, that's I think a great the, point. Yeah, that's a great point. The piece of it also that I experienced as a personal caregiver, and I think when we made this grant, I thought of it a lot, is how exhausted I felt. I mean, I was working full-time. I was taking care of somebody. I was getting prescriptions filled. I was taking going to a doctor's appointments. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't exercise. I My eating was, you know, more mm-hmm. fast food-like because I didn't have time to cook. I was leaving my kids at home when I didn't want to. Um, all of a sudden you have two or three full-time jobs and, yes. and you don't have time for yourself and you get tired and I think you get short-tempered and you don't, it's hard to smell any roses. There aren't any roses to smell. So you get exhausted and there's no respite. I mean, you wake up the next morning and it's the same thing. So I think for the caregiver is just this sense of when does this, you know, when do I get relief, you yes. know? And I just, my heart goes out to anybody in a caretaking position at all, and I've been there, where you just don't know where you're going to be able to take a breath. And I have to say, I mean, I think some of the online support groups provide yes. a good outlet. And, and I have to tell you, and this is very unpresidential, like, but when I went to the wellness community, all I did for the introductory meeting was sit and cry. Yes. I just cried because I, I didn't have any place else to do that. Yeah. To do that. And you know what? They were so loving and comforting, and yeah. they were telling me that nurses who get cancer are difficult. So I got <laughs> verified that my experience was true yeah. for yeah. the people. So. Well, you do you do need that place where you can just go uh, go and do that, and you can sit there and be with people who are going through the exact same thing that you're going through. And I, you know, so many people with cancer who tell me I have you know I have wonderful friends, I have wonderful family, I have a good support around me, but there is nothing like being with someone and talking to someone who is going through it or who has been through it. As much as these people around me love me and care about me, they just maybe can't understand right. what that experience is like. Um, Andrea, what did you what did you think of uh, of Diane's comments? What, any reaction? Oh uh, yeah, that I, conversation? I agree with Eileen. She was just spoke so eloquently, and um, you know a lot of the things she said, I could uh, shake my head and agree with. Um, as far as um, you know, not knowing how to go forward and getting you know getting as much information as you can, and, and I really like the story about her doctor, mm-hmm. and I think that you know, and all the doctors my family has seen over the last five years. Um, not many of them have that ability to talk to to the patient and put them at ease. Many of them are just, you know, not really in the moment. They're just, you know, trying to move on to the next patient or not really understanding the emotional side of it. And and one of Mark's doctors in particular took the time to have that kind of a conversation with him. And um, and like it did for her, it made him calm down. He actually um, gave me his cell phone number, and Mark called him that evening and talk, he talked to him. And so I think that as part of um, maybe some future program, teaching doctors about that piece of it, yes. you know, might be something. But um, and the other thing I thought of is what when she was talking about her care, her, her surprise about the caregivers, um, and touching on what Eileen said. You have a helpless feeling if somebody you love is going through cancer, and you really want to help. It's not just tell me what I can do, you know, just because that's the right thing to say. It's it's it really will 
make us feel better as caregivers to do something. So because you feel so helpless when somebody is sick. Yes. And people really do want to help. And it's hard even as a caregiver to accept other people's help because you're like, no, I can handle it. I can do it on my own. But to... um you really need to accept that help because you can't do it on your own, and, right. and you get you get run down, and you get exhausted and emotional, and and you need help. Yeah, you know that's a great tip, and I I I'd like to talk with both of you for a minute or two about you know what advice you would give to caregivers, and I think that's a great start to that conversation. Um, and I hear that from a lot of people. You know, people around you do feel helpless, and they want to help, and they actually. They want and need very specific direction right. uh, in how they are going to help you, and it really is putting this kind of team around you. Well, who's good at what, and how do you kind of deploy those skills to create this team around the person with cancer? So who's a good person to get online and do some research for me? Who's a very organized person who could maybe create a little file system for me for all of the, the documents and medical records? You know, who's a, who, you know, who are the cooks in the family right. in the neighborhood, and how do we set up a system where people can, you know, can, can, can bring food and, you know, food that, that, that your kids maybe actually like and would eat, right. you know. <laughs> um, but I think that's a great tip is, is to, you know, people around you want to help. They're looking for things to do. Take advantage of that. Use that. Give them very specific instructions on, uh, you know, on, on that piece um, and, and how they can be a part of that experience. What other, for, from, from both of you, you know, what other advice or tips would you, would you give to caregivers who are going through this right now? Well, I think, like you were touching upon, um, I've encouraged caregivers to keep a list on the refrigerator. Like if somebody says, what can I do to help? You have a list. I need, you know, something from the grocery store. I'm, you know, we need a ride to treatment. We need um, a ride for the kids. Right. Have specific things available for people who offer because they will offer. And um, at the time they offer, if you have a million things to do, you may say, I don't know. I don't know what I need, but if you keep a running list of what you need um, and then give people specific tasks to help you with. Yes. I used to, you know, because my mother was um, a widow when she had her cancer. Mm -hmm. It's different than, I guess, having a young family. But one of the things, we didn't have, I didn't have a lot of people coming to me and saying, what can I do? So I didn't, the list that I was making was mostly for myself, actually. Mm -hmm. And so part of it was what what was manageable, what could I do, what could I, maybe we hired a few people to help, Mm -hmm. which she didn't like. Um, It was just finding a path that we could both agree on of things, places she would accept help. And it was not and it wasn't easy but i you know you sort of trial and error you know yes. what what can work she had a couple of older friends who were around but a lot of them weren't well and so when you have an older person like that it's um you just it's very you know, it's like walking in a minefield of what what's going to be accepted or not. And I, I got yelled at a bunch of times, actually. <laughs> you know, and I would cry when I'd leave the house. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would get yelled at thinking I was trying to help. And part of it was because she didn't want – I was her daughter, and she wanted to be the mom, right. you know, and she yes. couldn't be the mom anymore. So the surrender of that role. Right. And, and that was um, not easy to surrender that role. No. And it's, it's a very – so, you know, caretaking takes on lots of different forms. So I actually had friends, my peers, who – some of them would visit her a little bit, but also they would just, I just needed people on the phone to talk right. to me. Yeah, just to be able to vent. <laughs> yeah, to say, you know, I tried to do this, I tried to do that, she wouldn't let me do it, you yeah. know. And then, but, you know, it's hard. And I think when there's kids around and you can give them lists like, you know, mm. what about dinner? Right. That's great. Sometimes it's much more amorphous than that where, you know, you just need some emotional support and you've had a bad moment. Well, I think that, you know, taking care of the caregiver is, is what the key is, you know, because 
we always hear on the flight what the flight attendant says: put the mask on yourself before helping others. Right. So if you if you are not taking care of yourself properly, you have nothing left to give. And so I always um, the other thing I recommend is that um, you do things for yourself. You know, whatever it, it even if it's a half hour away, or talk to your friends on the telephone, um, join a support group, or um, take time to get away and and pamper yourself in some way if you can exercise because that's been a huge um, stress relief for me. Even if it's an hour a week, I can not think about you know illness for that one hour and um, take you know, that yeah just take that time. Go- we, you know, we've had an amazing conversation today about uh, cancer care, caregiving. I want to thank uh, our guests, Eileen Heisman and, and Andrea Roschke, uh, for taking the time to be with us today um, and sharing your thoughts and experiences, own experiences about caregiving. Um, I, I want to dedicate our show today to our friend, um, Diane Carroll, for the work that she has done uh, in raising awareness of the important role uh, of, of cancer caregivers. There's, uh, I, I feel like we might need to do a part two of this show because there is so much to talk about um, in terms of the role. Uh, and the burden that, that cancer caregivers face. We're just really excited um, about the grant from the National Philanthropic Trust so we can continue our work uh, in this area. So I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.